Hey everybody, when you hear that music, you know it's time for another exciting episode of On the Lighter Side of Baseball. And we are about 36 hours into this strike slash lockout, whatever you want to call it, break the hearts of American baseball fans. And um, we are just at a loss to see how this is going to be resolved. I think that the players miscalculated the owner's distaste for Scott Boris, Tony Clark, and the uh, Players Association. And it uh, seems to me like the owners are trying to uh, let them know who's in charge of the uh, cotton field. <laughs> and you know what? It is hurting a lot of people. Forget the fans, which they've obviously done but it's hurting all the local businesses that look forward to spring training, the local businesses to look forward to entertaining people when baseball games are over with in the neighborhood. And they are, um, you know, basically not too uh, concerned about anything, but showing the players who's boss. Players on the other side have grossly miscalculated a, a, a win. They had a win. They could have won. You know, 700000 minimum salary, pretty good deal. And they just, you know, they all, they, they rejected it. Now, Monday night, they were all going, oh, let's meet. Let's get a deal done. Tuesday morning, what happened? Well, we don't know. And what probably happened was Scott Boris got on the uh, call with all the guys and said, hey, this isn't a good deal. They're screwing you guys to the wall. So I don't know, man. It's just a bad deal. It's a tough deal. But we're going to try to change it up a little bit tonight. And yeah, this is a rare nighttime broadcast. We are going to have John Wathen, one of my favorite guys in the world of baseball, uh, join us for a little while. He'll talk about, uh, you know, his life, how it's going, how the strike affects him, what he remembers from different eras when uh, teams that he was on went out on uh, work stoppages. And uh, we'll talk about some other things, but he's just a good guy to talk to. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, we'll be back and, and rolling. In the meantime, you know, you watch Major League, the MLB Network, and they're all trying to I don't know what, make sense, some sense out of this, but the sides were pretty close. I go back to the stupidity of this uh, uh, competitive balance tax. It's just, it's just stupid to be going out on strike over the CBT. Uh, number one, if you don't want to go over the CBT, you don't have to. And like six teams went right up to the $208 million luxury tax threshold didn't go over it by a million bucks and now you've got teams that are there i counted them there's something like 16 of the 30 major league teams are a hundred million dollars under the luxury tax yeah you heard me right a hundred million dollars under the salary the little i call the salary cap the orioles for example who have a tremendous history brooks robinson mike quayar jim palmer earl weaver cal repkin winning world series winning pennants they were a hundred and forty nine million dollars under the CBT. <laughs> like, I don't think that's really why they're on strike. I think it's, we're going to show you suckers and uh, the players. So you got four factions really in, in further analyzing the situation. Number one, you've got the players association. Number two, you got Scott Boris. And number three, you got the small market teams. And number four, you got the big market teams. And, uh, they can't, they can't agree on what they want to agree on. And so it's kind of a difficult thing to settle, but they had it. 
the movement of adding $140,000 to the minimum salary is uh, take this players. We're going to give you what you want. And they go, eh, we don't want that anymore. Eh, don't try and give us what we want because we don't want it today. We wanted it yesterday. We might want it tomorrow, but today we don't want it, which reminds me of the great ending of a league of their own. And Oh, for women playing baseball, wouldn't that be fun? We'd go out and watch women play major league baseball and not replacement players, but women. But in the end of that movie, it's, it's just a tremendously, if you haven't seen a league of their own, you ought to go see it. I think it's the 20th anniversary since they filmed it. Penny Marshall is the director. And in the end, they have the real women that were in the uh, women's major league baseball. And they're playing a game before they have their hall of fame induction ceremony where an exhibit was de was dedicated to the women who played baseball and you know here now they're 70 years old maybe 65 and they're playing this game of so they're playing softball i think and the umpire makes a bad call and the one of the women turns to him in the movie you know screaming and yelling at him for calling it a strike and the umpire says, might have been a strike yesterday. Might be a strike tomorrow. Today it's a ball. <laughs> it's just a, it's a great line and a lot of great lines in that movie. There's no crying in baseball. Uh, just as popular or close to it as just a bit outside. Anyway, that may be all we get to watch are baseball movies. So the top five baseball movies, I, I always like uh, Pride of the Yankees with uh, Lou Gehrig. It's a little old. I like uh, Major League. I like The Natural. I like Bull Durham and The League of Their Own. And, you know, uh, Trouble with the Curveball, great movie, you know, but it's a little bit not really a baseball deal, not as exciting as I would like. But, uh, you know, take a break. I'm going to get a hold of Mr. Watham. And when we come back, uh, we'll have John. Hey, everybody, we are back on the lighter side of baseball. And as I said earlier, there's not a lot to be uh, light about when it comes to uh, this wonderful sport. But we are joined by the legendary, my favorite manager in the history of baseball, besides maybe, uh, you know, I like, oh, I like Dick Hauser. John Watham, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. How are uh, you, Jamie? You know what? I'm doing fine. And, uh, uh, I always enjoy having you on the show and you're nice to do that. Everybody, there, there's a lot of people that have, uh, that listen all over the country. Interestingly, I don't know why, but a lot in Kansas city. So they're excited when I told a few of my buddies that uh, you were going to be on. So they go, is it going to be live? I go, no, my, my production guy moved to Honolulu. So no, it's not live. It's just Next time you talk to them, tell them that I'm barely alive, so it won't be live. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I played golf today. I'm betting you did too. Oh, I did. It was wonderful. Gosh, 85, I guess we set a record, uh, all-time record for this date. It was great. Well, let me ask you, we're about the same age. I may, you may have a, a, a day or two on me, but are you sore? <laughs> Not trying to get personal, but... Are you sore from golf? I am. You know what? I golf way too much all winter, even in cold weather. So I'm kind of used to it. And I, I do work out a lot on the treadmill elliptical. So I try to stay in good enough shape where I'm not sore. So I actually played yesterday and today. So I, I'm actually pretty good. Well, I work out on the, uh, uh, my stationary bike once a year. So I'm sore. <laughs> you hang clothes on it like some of my buddies do? You know, I, I do. I, I, I put a couple baseball caps on there and I, I call it a day. But I I walked nine yesterday and then rode nine and then played nine, 18 today. And I mean, my feet are killing me, dude. Well, that walking will get you. I, I walked, uh, I don't walk too much. We walked yesterday because it was cart path only still. Yeah. Uh, cart path to the ball and back. But uh, yeah, I just drive up to the cart with a cart and 
get out, hit it, and get back in and drive away. So I don't, I don't do a lot of walking in, in golf. I think walking's for a treadmill or elliptical, you know. Well, I think riding in the cart. You can smoke a cigar a little bit easier in a cart. I was going to say, it makes it easier. Lighter, you know, you're all set. All that stuff you might lose when you're walking, you know. It's not easy to smoke a cigar and walk. It kind of, uh, it's like a, uh, a trifecta of bad things happening between losing your cigar, losing your breath, and, and losing the light. I, I don't know. but I got to get you out to Lakewood this year. Uh, after not having new traps since it opened in 1977, we're finally getting new traps that will drain correctly after rain and white sand, and they're doing a lot of good stuff. So later on this summer, when they finally get it all done, I'd like to have you out. That'd be great. I, I remember the last time you were kind enough to take me out there, we should have probably warned some of the neighbors that uh, if they don't have plexiglass windows, they need to get them. It's a <laughs> tight little trick down that little golf course. It is tight. You know, everybody sees that it's only 6,300 or so huh. from the tips, and they think it's easy, but they don't see all the streets and houses along the way. Well, for some of you who've played golf with me, I can tell you, uh, I went to my five iron from the tee box after about three holes thinking, man, I just want, I don't want to embarrass John by breaking any windows out here, but it's a, it's a great layout. I love it. And 6,300 is about the max these days for me. Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that even, um, I suppose we want to talk about your experiences in the, uh, with play, player, uh, work stoppages. But before we do that, Let's talk about fantasy camp. You were one of the only fantasy camps to go. You're exactly right. And um, I think my daughter had a lot to do with that. She runs our fantasy camp and has for many, many years. And all by herself, actually, when a lot of the camps have four and five people running it, she's always done it by herself. She did have some help this year uh, for the first time. Uh, and uh, it was really good. We had a great camp. Our team with uh, Brett, George, uh, George Brett, myself, and Jamie Quirk, our team came in second out of the 18. So we did pretty well. Um, who we took, had a great, who took great the week. Flag? Uh, <laughs> a rookie, a rookie by the name of Alex Gordon was one of the coaches on the other team, and John Buck. Wow. Yeah. Was... So I was really upset to lose to a rookie like Gordon, you know, first yeah. year. Well, and when you say Brett, and then you had to clarify it with George. I don't know of any other Bretts that would be at the fantasy camp, but what what a fantastic! I told you last time I want to be your bench coach for the next fantasy camp, but we well, can do that. You pay double. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll pay triple. That'd be fun. What a what a great lineup! But man, oh man, uh, John Buck and and. Uh, I assume Montgomery went uh, again, as he seems to. Jeff did not go this year. Uh, we had some of the, the regulars, John Mayberry, uh, Willie Wilson. Uh, Les Norman helps organize a little bit with uh, my daughter. Uh, we had, uh, oh, David DeJesus for the first time came as well. He was really good. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed it immensely. He was smiling the whole week. And uh, we had a guy, Dina always, my daughter Dina Blevins always tries to get a, some entertainment for one of the nights when we eat in the cafeteria. She got a guy, he's called, you can look him up on YouTube. He's called the baseball stance guy. Yeah. <laughs> he can do anybody in the world's stance. So all the 17 or 18 alumni that were there, well, instantly Bo Jackson surprised everyone. Dina knew about it. I knew about it. He came in on Wednesday for the last three days, which everybody appreciated. Man. But this guy, the, the batting stance guy did every one of us that was there as an alumni, all our stances, and then would take uh, uh, take a request from the campers, you know, going back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Of course, some of them aren't that old, remember some of them, but uh, he's unbelievable how, how good he is. Very entertaining. Check him out on YouTube. I will do that, and that's pretty cool. Well, it's that's cool. I mean, I can still see you're at bat. And of course, Brett had a pretty patented uh, uh, stance that I think probably yeah. easily duplicated. But um, man, you get down to UL Washington and you get down to Tommy Poquette and all sorts of these guys. And, you know, 
That's fun. But what a good cast of guys. I mean, and there's some guys out here that listen to my podcast that have been to your, been to the Royals fantasy camp and just, you know, had a blast. And is it Jamie, is it Bluma? Is that his name? Bluma's there every year. He does a tremendous job as well. Al Fitzmorris is there. I'm trying to think of some of the others. Jimmy, Jimmy Eisenreich was there this year. Uh, Dina tries to get a couple new guys each year. You know, we're, we're starting to try to get some younger guys because a lot of us are, let's say, beyond our prime. Yeah. <laughs> so coaching is, you know, the best thing about coaching, you know what my fantasy is in fantasy camp? I coach third base or first base smoking a cigar and giving signs. Yeah. That's I, my fantasy. When I went to the Cubs fantasy camp, Billy Williams was coach, was my coach my manager along with jim lynch the former general manager of the chicago cubs anyway billy stand first base first inning ground ball the shortstop i'm playing first this 30 year old shortstop picks it backhand throws a strike right at my knees i do the stretch and i couldn't walk for the rest of the for the whole (laughs) fantasy camp i just tore my hammy but uh and my my good friend and our buddy that we've talked about a lot dave uh, Nelly would tell me, man, listen to your body. Don't, don't do anything crazy. So the first play I'm, I'm Billy Williams goes, Jamie, was that your leg? And I go, yeah, I hate to say it, but it was, man, you gotta, you gotta downplay that former, you know, we're getting old, dude. I can't, I, there's no other way around it. Well, no matter how many times we send out emails and talk to the campers about stretching and doing everything, run a little bit, jog a little bit. Do not run fast out of the box because your mind might tell you you can, but you're going to pull something. We had, it happens every year. First game, one of our guys uh, tore his Achilles first at bat running the first base, but this guy was unbelievable because he came back and he caught several games on one knee with a torn Achilles. Holy moly. The umpire or somebody on deck would have to retrieve a lot of the balls, but he was a gamer. That's amazing. That's what, well, God, what a great lineup, including, I mean, all the guys that come back for that, that's that's a pretty big task. I was talking to uh, Craig Kashan with the the pregame, postgame voice of the Bucks and the Brewers, and he said they canceled theirs. And I don't think the Cubs – I'm not sure what's going on with, with the Cubs deal because of Hundley. But um, I, I don't know how many other camps went. But uh, So you were in surprise. Did you ever get over to Wickenburg? Have you been over there ever? I have been there. I not not while well I was there this trip, but yeah, I've played golf over in Wickenburg. It's a nice little uh, track, isn't it? Yes, it is. They've got a, actually a couple tracks there. I can't remember the name of the the newer one that's been there. I don't know, seven, eight, ten years. Yeah, uh, Wickenburg Ranch is that it? That's it. And you know, the owner of that, the, the original owner, now his sons own it, and it's run by Troon, uh, was Van Tile of Van, you know, Van Chevrolet, and oh, everything else. Another- didn't know that. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, I played it when it first opened. I just had a trailer for the clubhouse, and now I've been back one other time a few years ago, and they've got a nice clubhouse now. Well, and they've got this, and a shout-out to the guys that listen that belong out there because they do listen. Um, <laughs> they've got a par-3 course in the middle of the in the middle of the regular course with a, a nice big bar in the middle of the par-3 layout. It's a pretty cool deal, except oh. you're out in the friggin' middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's not too bad from surprise, but yeah, if you're coming from Phoenix or Scottsdale, it's quite a quite a trip. I know. I know. So your health's good. Your golf games. My golf game is uh, tapering off from mediocre to poor. So, so, <laughs> now, and- I, it's it's okay. I mean, I shoot I shoot in the eighties, eighty two, eighty six, eighty seven, somewhere in there sometimes. You know, that's not bad. I mean, I yeah. I see 80 about the 16th hole and, <laughs> and then 90. But um, tell me, if they get this thing settled, will you go back to spring training? Well, I'm going regardless since my job is a special assistant in player development. Minor leagues are out there now going, and I'm just a part-time guy now, so my contract says I only have to go for two weeks. So I'm going March 14th to the March 28th, and – We'll see all the games, and that's what I like to do because I evaluate uh, the players, and he could do a lot better in game situations and batting practice as well, and you know, infield practice, their arms and all that. But uh, yeah, I'll just be going for two weeks. So yeah, it's going on now. We've had a couple of pre camps, 
pre-spring training camps. And I think we start full camp this Friday and then I'll be there uh, a week, uh, a week from Monday on the 14th. So is that a new position for you, John, or have you kind of been doing that for a while? No, no. I, uh, a funny story, you know, Nancy and I have been married 51 years, a couple of years ago. I said, you know, honey, I've been in base. This, this is my 51st year in baseball. And I said, you know, I'm, I might want to think about shutting it down. I'm 72. I was 70 at the time. I think so 69 or 70. She said, you can't do that. I'm used to you being gone. Some of the time I have my own life. Don't you know? Yeah. And it's like, Oh, I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I said, what about part-time? She said, perfect. And you know what? It's worked out great for her and for me. <laughs> Because I tell everybody, I've been married 51 years. We only lived together in 30, 35, probably. And that yeah. makes a great, that makes a great marriage, you know? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I know that, uh, that's my wife's in Illinois. And um, <laughs> half the time watching grandkids and we go back and forth. And then I think she enjoys the time by herself, but she would never admit that. Yeah. What, uh, so I've been doing part-time probably three or four years now. I used to go out probably 70, 80 days in the summer. Now it's probably 30 or 40. I just see each of our five clubs. We used to have seven. Then we, you know, baseball shut down 40 teams. And we, a lot of people went from seven teams in the minor leagues to five, which we have now. So I just go out once for five games at each spot. And with travel, it's about 30 days, a couple of weeks in spring training, a couple of weeks in instructional league in the fall. So is uh, Witt going to be, is he at spring training now or is he part of the yeah. four-man roster that can't? Yeah, no, he's not on the roster because he didn't have to be protected yet. So he's out there and uh, I'm sure he's wowing everybody. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's clearly going to be up if there's ever another uh, baseball game played in the major leagues. I would think <laughs> that he'd be. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how his service time passes or the, will they continue if there's an agreement. Um, I think he's the type of, type of talent, Jamie, that you don't even think about service time and starting the clock too quickly on the being on the 40, man. I think if we have a typical spring train where we get in 30 days or, or so, I think he'll make it out of spring training myself. You know, the, the ideal thing, if, if now that – you know, they've canceled the first two series of the year, our first series in Cleveland, our first series here against the White Sox. Um, I would guess he'll start in uh, Omaha and get some playing and game playing in until the season starts. And then they would probably bring him up to Kansas City after the season gets started, whenever that is. So is he a five-tool guy? He might have seven or eight tools. Not a uh, besides the five tools. He's as good a person off the field as he is on. He gets it. He's smiling all the time. He's a great teammate. All of the intangibles off the field he has. So uh, I think he'll be around a long time and be a really great player. Well, I know the fans of Kansas City uh, are looking forward to him getting up here. I mean, he's been, you know, he, there's, there's always the Bubba Starling syndrome. And I'm not picking on Bubba, but, uh, you know, the – with social media and with so many sports and cable networks, you're always more, the fans are more up to speed on the minor league development, I think, than ever before. And people have been waiting for Bobby Witt since he got drafted. Yeah, I hear you. Exactly. Probably the, the last guy that probably had as much hype as him was, uh, besides Bubba, was probably Alex Gordon. You could, you could make some uh, similarities between uh, Gordon and his first his start in Kansas City and and probably Bobby Witt when he gets here. Um, you know, it's it's a rocky road. It, it, and I hope people have patience because as good as he's been in the minor leagues in such a short time, just 22, um, there's going to be some times when he, he doesn't, you know, do what everybody expects. So you've got to have a little bit of patience. It takes a little time. I mean, the big leagues are the big leagues. And uh, there's a reason why guys scuffle at times in the big leagues. Um even though they've had great minor league seasons and great minor league careers. No, I think the, you know, the fan, it's just a, it's a tough deal to have to discuss a lot and enthusiastically with the, uh, with the state of affairs that sort of looked good on a Monday and looked bad on Tuesday. Uh, yeah. The, 
I know you went through a few of these work stoppages. How would you compare your experience there to uh, what's going on here? Um, I see you now. The audio, the videos there, man. You're looking I like I like your. Figured something. Yeah, you like the goatee? What do you think? Yeah, is that Dick Hauser right behind you, or Quisenberry, or uh, you? Oh, Ted, Ted Williams? Ted Williams. That's awesome. I got Ted Williams, and then I got uh, uh, I got Joe DiMaggio right behind me as well. Yeah. Yeah, two uh, two nice portraits. We're going to have to, in addition to golf, when we play at each other's courses, you know, half of my memorabilia has moved up to Oak Brook, Illinois, but uh, I still have a few things here over my shoulders, Jackie Robinson and Dave Nelson's Emmy Award. I don't know what I can do with that. I can't even sell it on eBay. Well, I need to give you a John Watham picture of some sort, probably uh, sitting in, in the bullpen one day. You won't believe how many John Watham autographs I've seen in my, number one, there's a beautiful autograph on a duckhorn wine bottle that you signed in St. Croix when you went oh. up to the Queen Louise tournament. Yeah. And yeah. when, when Nellie passed away, I collected all of his, anything that was uh, red and liquidy, I, I seized. And there it is, John Watham on the top. It's beautiful. <laughs> Well, I've signed I've signed some weird stuff in my life. I know I, in spring training, this uh, good friend of mine, Brad Stallings, who always plays in our camp, lives in Surprise. He always brings me a bunch of cigars, and um, we actually had cigars for the guys this year. Dina got a bunch of cigars for all the campers, and uh, he said, "Duke, why don't you uh, sign this cigar for me so I can put it on my desk?" I've never signed a cigar before. There's always something new. Yeah, and you could never say you've seen or heard it all in baseball. No, the closest I got to that is that Louis Tian signed a box of his cigars, and uh, I smoked the cigars, but I kept the uh, I kept the autographed cigar box. Which I well, I understand signing a box. That's a little bit easier than signing a cigar. You know, well, things yeah, get and probably easier to read. Disintegrated, disintegrated by now, you know, dried out and everything, especially with, in surprise with no humidity. Uh, well, let's see, eighty-one work stoppage. 81 was a long one. Yeah, we had, uh, we missed about 50, 60 games, maybe something like that. And we were building our first house in Kansas City at the time. And I didn't know if I was going to have any money to pay for it. Uh, the one positive about that is I got to be around when it was going up and, uh, I, which probably wasn't a good thing for the builders because I'm, I'm not the best guy. I'm kind of anal as far as, hey, this needs to be this way. This needs to be this way. Why are you doing that over there? This has to be over, you know. So they probably didn't like me. They were probably ready for me to go back to work. I thought you were going to say the best thing was you got to spend more time with Nancy. That too. Yeah. But yeah, she's in another room, so she didn't hear that. If she'd have uh, been in here. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Well, yeah, I got, to see, got to see the kids play some ball. You know, they were playing. Oh, I guess back then they were playing. They were been my two boys were probably five and uh, eight, so they were they were in the t ball and maybe coach pitch or maybe regular baseball. Oh, there was obviously no cell phones, no social media. You no, had, you had Marvin Miller, right? Was still there. Uh, Miller, who I I wish these guys had today because he was uh, unbelievable. You know, uh, I'm not I'm not downplaying who they have now negotiating because I don't really know them. I just know how good Marvin Miller was. You know, he had worked a long time for the steel mills and their unions. And uh, he was a smart guy, a very smart guy and, and did a lot for us and for the players today, you know, to, to have what they have today is a lot of it because of Marvin Miller. Well, and he just got inducted posthumously into the hall of fame, which was a crazy exactly. He should have been in there a long time ago. Yeah. yeah. And then Ted Simmons, who I learned quite a bit about Simmons's role in the, in the union and how active he was in terms of your player rep back then, you know, it never seemed to be the Max Scherzer of the world. It seemed to be like, Hey man, I don't want to be the player rep because that's not good for your career. But mm -hmm. do you remember who the player rep was and how you guys kept I believe it was Dan Quisenberry, who was a very smart guy. And uh, I miss him all the time. I think back to all of our, the fun we used to have, you know, 
And gosh, it's been a long time now since he passed, uh, way too young. But Dan, Dan did a great job in keeping us informed of what was going on. And that was a weird deal, that, that strike. Um, you know, a lot of people have forgotten we were in the World Series against the Phillies in 80 with Jim Fry, the only year, the only full year he managed. And we got off to a bad start in 81 prior to the strike. And when we came back, uh, he got fired and Dick Hauser took over when we came back in uh, late July, early August, I guess it was. And Fry somehow ended up with the Cubs at some point after that, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. He was GM over there and managed, I believe, the Cubs. Yeah. Well, how did I, Miller? I, I've thought the same thing. I mean, I don't know Tony Clark. My, and I'm just guessing, I have no idea. I don't have any contacts at all. But I got to believe uh, that Scott Boris got involved early on in the uh, negotiations. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, from, I thought we had a deal. First of all, I, I was pretty pessimistic through the winter. And then Monday, everybody got me all riled up that they were going to have a deal. And then the owners come up to $700,000 with, uh, for the minimum payment, which if, if you believe what the, the players are saying, we want to help the young guys make money. There's no better way than to increase the minimum salary by 140 grand. And then all of a sudden, I think because there wasn't a Marvin Miller, there wasn't a Bud Selig, there wasn't a whoever. Uh, the players missed a big opportunity to not go away, but to take what that offer was, improve it, and get on down the road in, in five years. That's yeah. my feeling. Well, Tony Clark, I don't know what kind of background he has as far as negotiating. And he might just be a figurehead that's the front man. I'm sure they've got some union-type reps that are, that are handling a lot of negotiations and trying to decide what's right and what's wrong. So, um, But anyway... Uh, Cooler heads need to prevail. Uh, we lost a lot of fans in 1994, the last big strike we had. I was in Boston that year. That was my last year in uniform in the big leagues, and season got shut down in August, and everybody remembers there was no World Series. We can't afford to do that again. We've lost enough fans through the years. I think baseball is too slow. Players make too much money. The owners are greedy. All of that stuff. Right. Uh, so they need to get their act together and, and get it done somehow. Uh I think the problem is sometimes, Jamie, that everybody wants to win the negotiations. Well, there are no winners. You just settle and, and do what's best for both sides. And, and I think that can be done and do what's best for the game of baseball. And that can be done. Yeah. It's like, you know, a good mediation in the legal world that I was familiar with Yeah, would end and nobody was happy. Everybody was pissed. They were pissed at you know, their client took money, their the other side's pissed that their their client paid too much money. And the, they always said the mark of a good mediation is everybody leaves mad, but you get the thing done. And yeah, in, right the, in the baseball deal, they were, I thought they were close enough to where um, they both look rather foolish. And I'm sure, you know, again, this is all just my own opinions, but you have the a lot of these agents that get involved and if not directly they certainly the Boris's talking to the year of Max Scherzer and then you've got Clark who I have always thought as anybody in his position is sort of haunted by the ghost of Marvin Miller I mean you're trying yeah. nobody, nobody's gonna be Marvin Miller because like you said he had a great background and he knew and he and and Simmons emphasized this. He knew he wasn't going to get everything, but he was going to go full bore to get some stuff and come back to fight again another day. And mm -hmm. that didn't seem to be the mantra of these guys. And then on the owner's side, I guarantee from being in the AAA meetings, there were the haves and the have-nots. Then there were the small market guys, and they're the big market guys. And you know, eight guys can nix the deal. That's all it takes. One fourth plus one. I got a feeling that, uh, and I don't know this for a fact, but I got a feeling that some of the small market teams are not in favor of settling. And some of the big market teams want to settle right now. That's kind of my feeling. 
Um, but I, and I don't know anything. I don't have any insight info. People ask me all the time, what are you hearing about the strike? I just know what I read in the paper or on the internet. Um, no more than, or no less than anybody else. Yeah. The, the thing that, you know, I've always harped on, on, this is the fourth year of this incredibly exciting podcast. And it's only been renewed four times because I'm the only one that can renew it. <laughs> but I've always harped on, you know, there should be a basement. And I guess if there's a basement, the players are afraid, okay, we'll give you a basement, but we want a hard salary cap. But, you know, there was only the, the Rays are never going to get anywhere near the competitive uh, tax threshold um, any more than the Orioles or the Marlins or the blah, blah, blah. There were, I counted up tonight, there were 14 teams in calculating the luxury tax that were over $100 million under the luxury tax cutoff of $209 million. So to me, I don't understand why the players, and maybe you can tell me, why the Players Association isn't saying, no, the competitive balance tax should be on below. If you aren't within X dollars of the average major league payroll, you're going to pay a tax against that. And mm -hmm. for example, the average is around 120 million. So let's just say you guys have to be at 100 million. And if you're not, you're going to pay, you know, 50% of what your payroll is into a deal. And then there, it's like the pitch clock. If there's a pitch clock, guys are going to start pitching faster. I don't know. Yeah. It's frustrating. Yeah. Well, there's so many issues out there. It's not just one or two. There's a lot out there that they're discussing and talking about and trying to settle on. So I, you know, as a player way back in the day, um, it didn't seem like there was as many issues as there are today. Maybe because we weren't making the kind of money that they're making today. I don't, I don't know, but there's a lot of different monetary issues from on both sides. And, you know, the owners are making good money. The players are making good money. Uh, don't, don't kill the golden goose. You know, I mean, let's, let's get it over with, get it done, get back to playing. You're, you're going to lose a lot of people again. And, and then do you remember uh, in 94 when they had this strike prior to 94, a lot of general managers would get very upset if you threw a ball in the stands to a kid or anybody. Yeah. And after 94, when we came back after that strike, they said, throw all the baseballs you want into the stands to make the people happy again. The people that didn't like the fact that they struck and didn't have a World Series. So uh, it's kind of amazing. Uh, they realize what they did and tried to do everything they could to get the fans back. And for the most part, I guess they have. There's some that say, I'll never go to another game again or never watch another game on TV. And some some say they won't, and some will still watch games after saying they won't. Um, but you're still going to lose a, a bunch of fans, and it's it's still, to me, the greatest game in the world, and it's really a shame that it has to come down to this. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, from a fan's standpoint, uh, it'd be hard to find too many people that have been more engaged in, in baseball on some angle as a non-player or a non-owner than me with season tickets with the Cubs, season tickets with the Royals, Royals since 79. I finally turned them over to my son. I, you know, I, I called the Royals and I said, look, you know, I'm getting old. Can I, can I transfer this stuff to my kid? Cause they're great seats. And so he's doing that. But you know, the, uh, the thing that the fans don't get anything out of this, you know, I think one year the fans walked out in the seventh inning as a display of protest mm -hmm. and, I don't think that did much. The ticket prices certainly don't ever go down. Once in a while, uh, they'll hold the line and won't, there won't be an increase. And I'm, I'm speaking generally of the teams. I feel, I don't know your owner, um, but God bless him. I mean, and I'm sure that there are many residual avenues of money coming in from lots of sources, but two years of pandemic and then this work stoppage and those are the three years since he bought the team yeah i i, I feel for john sherman and, and the ownership group because uh they've done everything the right way you know they paid everybody they didn't release any minor league players um to come in and have to face that when you 
have just spent a billion dollars on a team, um, they're probably thinking what's going to happen next, you know, and, yeah. and obviously this happened and, uh, who knows what, what could happen once this is settled. There might be something else. I mean, but it, just really poor timing, obviously. How, um, I don't see any avenue for a quick resolution unless somebody just decides that, oh, we were wrong. You were right. See you later. I mean, the, uh, for the players to unanimously reject that last offer, which I thought was stupid, um, given the fact that there was some meat on the bones that they could have probably gotten some more, but under the Marvin Miller theory, get the minimum salary address, get some money for the super twos and let's get on down. But again, to, to strike over the CBT to me is like, it's, it's insane because if you know what it is and you don't want to go over it, six teams went up to within a million dollars of the threshold and stopped only the Dodgers. And I think the Padres went over it and I don't know. I mean, it just, it just defies logic that that's the deal. Now, did they address slow play? Did they address the pitch clock? Did they address the shift? Did they address uh, electronic umpires? No. Um, they got to do something, John, to speed up the game. I, I, I mean, you more well, than anybody ought to have an easy solution. You know, uh, my oldest grandson is a freshman at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and I've been watching some of their games. It's actually it changed their brand to just Charlotte, not to be confused with the University of North Carolina or University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And he's a freshman catcher on that team. I was watching some of the games the last couple of weeks. And some of those college games were three hours and 40 minutes. Uh, change, you know, of course, they used early in the season, they used five, six, seven pitchers. But they even have uh, replays on umpires' calls in, in some of these college games as well. Yeah. You know, which sometimes with, they don't have the electronics, probably that New York does. Um, they would take, you know, five to 10 minutes on a call, you know, trying to figure out whether it was correct or not. And so, yeah, it's not just professional baseball. It's it's all of baseball, probably. Yeah, I mean that's that's surprising. I thought you were going to say they play in an hour and a half because they don't have any beer commercials, and they don't have any commercials to sell. But um, they've all, I think they've all been over three hours, and, and several were three forty. Yeah. Well, no bats break. So I mean, I. Well, how's that? Is that I, encouraging for you? <laughs> no. No, I mean I looked at. I went back and looked at the box score for the 59 world series, the white Sox Dodgers. And that took two hours, you know? Yeah. And, um, I think I didn't watch one world series game this past fall. You know, I got up three in the morning or whatever, turned on, uh, you know, sports center and found out who won and maybe fast forwarded part of it. But four hours, was, in my opinion, crazy. Now I've gone to ball games and I've turned to the guy next to me and I go, man, you know, this is going to be this. We're here for four hours. And people have said to me, like, well, we don't have anything else to do. It's great. We only come to one game a year. So we don't care if it lasts six hours. <laughs> well, you know, I've often thought about that, uh, the kind of prices that you have to pay for concessions and for your ticket and everything. There's probably a lot of people that would that don't go every single day, don't have season tickets, that probably would enjoy a three-and-a-half-hour ball game for their, to get their money's worth, you know. I think that's 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 probably true. And you know, I could go down the the liquor store in Deer Creek and buy a case of Miller Lite for twenty four bucks, and I'll pay twelve bucks for a one one glass. It's gotten crazy. I mean, I, I and I think I get grumpier with age, but it just um, it's my wife says about me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard to keep enthusiastic about it. Obviously, you have a different perspective. Um, is your son still with the uh, Phillies? I'm assuming he is. He is. He's, uh, well, when we ever start, it'll be his fifth year in the big leagues, uh, coaching third base of the Phillies. So that's great. He's uh, getting some good pension time and uh, enjoying it. And uh, working for Joe Girardi, their manager, he really likes him and they get along well. So, Hopefully he'll get his uh, 10 years, which is maximum pension, uh, you know, with the Phillies or somebody else. No, that's great. Dusty Watham, that's uh, that's the name to remember when he's waving around the winning run of 
the 2022 World Series. If we that had. would be cool. Oh. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, here's how here's how removed I am. This is I hate I hate to admit it, especially that I have a podcast in Kansas City. Tell me who is uh, managing the team these days? <laughs> managing who? The Royals. Uh, Mike Matheny. That's right. The St. Louis guy that I didn't like him in St. Louis. Love him in Kansas City. You're right. See, you know, age, baby, I'm getting old. A good man. And he learned a lot from his time in St. Louis. He actually, prior to getting the job with the Royals, felt that he needed to learn more about analytics. So he went to class about analytics and learned that. He went to a, a social media guy to learn more about social media. And somebody who instructed him about how to talk to the media and do a better job of that. Um, talk to the players maybe a little bit differently, psych psychologically. Uh, he went and did all the right things to try to improve himself as a manager. And most guys that are old school managers say, hey, I am what I am. This is what you're going to get. They're not going to try to change because they think that, uh, you know, they, they're going to, they're not going to change. Let, let's put it that way. They're not going to change. They're going to, they're going to just say that this is who I am. But he felt there were some deficiencies that probably caused him some issues in St. Louis. And he was man enough to say, I need to go learn some more about this stuff, the analytics, uh, talking to the players, the media. Uh, and he did that and got better. And, and I think he's a good guy and a, and a good fit for Kansas City. Well, he looks like he could catch tomorrow. I mean, yeah. He seems like he's stayed in pretty good shape. And I think the the book on him in St. Louis was, at least it came out publicly, maybe had some trouble with some teammates and how he related to him. But, you know, I think that's true with a lot of managers that are smart enough to kind of reinvent themselves, figure out, hey, you know, the old days were, are old for a reason. And... Um, you know, Matheny seems to to get along with every different group of guys with the uh, the Royals, and I suppose, you know, it's easy if you have a Whit Merrifield and you have a Sal Perez, you can pretty well span just about everybody on the team if you keep up with those guys. Well, I think whenever you get a second chance at managing or whatever the job is, I think you're going to reflect back on what you did before and, and see some things. Maybe I wish I would have done this a little differently. So I think that's part of it as well. When you get a second chance to manage, I think there's a lot of guys going to change a little bit and do some things differently. So Whit Merrifield is the player rep, I think, as I've heard. With yes. I was trying to get a hold of Grimsley. Uh, Jason's been on the show a few times, but he was a player rep, I think, with the Royals way back when. I and, think you're right. Um, it'd be interesting because I, I have a pretty good feel for which side of the line he, he'd be pretty outspoken on. So hopefully we'll get get him on the show in the next couple of weeks. And hopefully the, hopefully this impasse gets, um, gets corrected soon. I think, you know, the commissioner seems to put his foot in his mouth that the dude needs to like not communicate with the, uh, you know, talking about how this will be the worst thing in the world for baseball. And then it happens. I don't. Well, he's, not, he's not the best communicator or speaker. No, in, he's really speaking not. But Selig wasn't particularly, um, oh, I don't know what the word is, sophisticated, but he got his point across in a, in a pretty cool way. In fact, I think I've told you, he was the best witness I had in, the, in our trial with uh, uh, Mr. Kaufman and Mr. Fogelman. And so Bud, Bud testified and to Reinstorf's amazement, I said, Selig was great. They couldn't cross-examine the guy. And everybody's different, communicating in different ways. But um, I don't know, boy. I just, I just hope that somebody figures out how to get this thing done, you know, which is how things get done, how things get settled. Behind the lines, somebody, hey, look, what if we forget this and you guys get this and let's get mm -hmm. on down the road. But, wow, you know, arbitration, free agents, there's a lot of stuff to get done. Well, when uh, the owners start realizing how much they're losing per game and the players do the same and you start, you've already canceled the first two series of the season 
because their salary, whenever it starts, whenever the season starts, will be prorated, obviously. Um, I think that's a pretty good impetus to get things rolling in negotiations uh, when they start thinking of, and looking at the dollars that they're losing per game. Yeah, and everybody else that's affected, the guys that make, you know, make their living out of uh, vending at the ballpark or you know, the neighborhood of Wrigley Field or the neighborhood of Bush Stadium or whatever, you know, all around the country, different, uh, different ballparks have different people dependent. Spring training, perfect example. Three years in a row, they've gotten kind of hosed in all the spring training venues in both Florida and Arizona. So, you know, try to be optimistic and, and, uh, Hope not only that they can resolve it, but you know maybe figure out a few ways to shave a little bit of time off of uh, off of the game, and uh, you know get. I'm not, very, I'm not very optimistic about that because they've been talking about that for ten years. Yeah, and it's gone the other way. They've gotten longer instead of shorter. So I don't know if that's ever going to happen. Shit, what do you think about that? Is that going to ever happen? Making what having four guys on the infield dirt. Uh, I would like to see that. Uh, I don't like the shift. I don't like guys playing in the outfield. And that's part of the part of the problem with baseball right now is there's either strikeouts or home runs a lot. There's not right. enough offense. So I think you need to create more excitement uh, on offense, and that would be one way to do it, to keep them on the dirt. Um, and maybe even two guys on the right side of second base and two guys on the left side and make sure they stay in the dirt. So yeah. that would – that would help tremendously, I think, as far as creating better, more batting averages and maybe some of these guys that strike out 150 times a year will just decide maybe they can put it in play now and, and maybe get a base hit. What's the, uh, the thing that drives me crazier than anything about baseball is nobody cares if they strike out anymore. It used to be a badge of honor if you didn't strike out very much. And right. I'm a guy who didn't hit home runs, so I try to put the ball in play and run. But now, Duke, you hit some home runs. Let's not be too modest. No, not very many. But, I, you know, I was a guy who stole bases for a catcher and, and uh, you know, just tried to move the runners over and, and do what I needed to do to try to help the team win. And now it's like the analytical people think, well, strikeout's just an out, just as much as if you hit a ground ball to short or a pop-up. Baloney. If I hit a ground ball, that shortstop's got to catch it and throw me out. If I hit a pop-up over second on a broken bat, and it falls in, that's a base hit. I'm on base. The strikeout does you nothing. You know, and it's like, it's no big deal if you strike out anymore. That drives me nuts. Yeah, I think some of the uh, um, analytics are skewed. Guy, I've heard announcers say, well, RBIs don't matter. And batting hmm. numbers don't matter. And wins and losses don't matter. And I'm, I'm going, well, forgive me, but if there's guys that aren't driving in runs and guys that aren't scoring runs, so you ain't going to have any winning games. So it's, it drives me crazy. And then how many, how many hits do you think Brett would get if everybody played him to the other side of second base and just sit there oh, and bump? Drives him crazy too because he could hit the ball all over the ballpark, you know, left field, center field, right field. So drives him crazy that some of these guys don't even try or attempt to go the other way, and that would stop the shift altogether if you could prove to him that you can go the other way. But they don't. They seem to be too stubborn to do it. I, I don't know. Well, I don't get it. It's like a, the, the guy on deck watches the player uh, walk on four pitches, and then he goes up and swings at the first pitch. It dry, yeah. That drives me crazy. But yeah. a lot of things drive me crazy. My, my freaking short game drives me crazy. But, <laughs> you know, that's on me. What the, hey, Did you take any swings down in fantasy camp, or did you uh, smartly stay no. out of the batter's box? No, Jamie, I'm 72, and my swinging days are over, except if I have a golf club in my there you go. All right. Yeah, Tell me about – I haven't seen Willie Wilson for a year or two. Tell me how's Willie doing. Is he – Oh, Willie, Willie looks like he can still play. He's the same size as he was. And, you know, he, he's in great shape. And, and uh, yeah, he's – he's. Uh, I'm pretty sure that – you said the Cubs didn't have a camp. He usually goes to the Cubs camp if it's a different week and also the Royals camp. So, pretty sure he told me the Cubs didn't have a camp. I think, like Denier, I think Denier told me the same thing, that they they did not have a camp. But um, when I went, Willie was there, and he was – I think he was in charge of the building that housed 
uh, adult beverages. He seemed to he seemed to <laughs> like that part of the uh, the camp pretty well. And then uh, you know, there's nobody I ever saw fly between first and third better than Willie Wilson. Man, Absolutely. you know what great teams you had the pleasure to be on. Uh, McRae, yeah, I was, I was blessed. Uh, I was blessed. Uh, the seven or ten years I played, we were postseason seven out of ten years from '76 to '85. So yeah. um, that's one of the reasons I probably stayed because if you keep winning most of the time, they don't make a lot of changes. If you if you lose a lot, they make a lot of changes. So I I kind of hung around partially because of that. <laughs> you know, I could play a few positions as well. For, for those of you out there who don't realize, John played in just south, I think, of 900 regular season games, if I'm if I'm correct on that stat. Sounds, sounds about right, yeah. So, you know, I was a part-time guy some some years and a full-time guy other years, so I, I was never a, a regular my whole career, but uh, just was in the right place at the right time and was blessed, you know, to be on a lot of good teams with a lot of good players. Well, good catcher, good first baseman, uh, obviously a good teammate. And my favorite thing was the guy was a great manager and uh, for the Omaha Royals, although you didn't get to stick around uh, very long. No, I didn't even get in a whole year. I got called up to Kansas City by Sherholtz uh, in August of that uh, first year as manager. If I had my druthers, I would have liked to have managed, uh, you know, two or three years there. As we've discussed before in your program, you know, that when I got called up to Kansas City when Billy Gardner got let go, there were seven guys on the team that I played with. It was just a, uh, two years removed from being a player. How's, so, how's Hal's health? Just generally. What, what's that? How's McRae doing? Um, so, so he's got diabetes and I was on dialysis a lot. So he says had some rough times. That's what I understood. Fitzy's still Fitzy, I assume. Fitzy's doing great. Oh man. What a good bunch of good alums, you know, that really, uh, that really is a, a, a good group. And uh, obviously Nelly was, I've got Nelly's old hat. He wore number three. I've got uh, some playoff roster that's, I don't think he played much, but I think uh, Herzog liked having him around. So uh, He was a very vet veteran uh, presence for our teams in a couple of years he was there, 76, seven, I think maybe. Um, when I first got there, you know, a guy that would share advice about uh, the way the game should be played and, and would take young guys under his wing and talk to him about a lot of things, not just baseball, but off the field stuff too. And yeah. I love Dave. He was a great guy. He was a great guy, a really good friend and a good guy. And uh, um, he just loved baseball. I mean, that, as I've said before, that was one reason I started the podcast. I didn't have Nelly to argue with anymore after he, after he passed away about how I thought baseball appeared to me versus how it appeared to him. But, um, you know, I think as the uh, time goes by, hopefully uh, it'll get resolved and, and you'll have a nice trip down to Arizona for a couple of weeks. And then, uh, Unfortunately, the Royals don't have seven or eight different farm clubs. You probably don't mind not having seven or eight trips to make, but it's another yeah. pet peeve. Obviously, we own the minor league team for a while, and for the major leagues to, you know, unilaterally cut out a big percentage of the minor leagues just doesn't make sense to me. A lot of things don't make sense to me, but um, nobody asked my opinion. I think I could have settled the strike too if they had just called you and me and had it over. You know, there's so many changes that I've seen in 51 years in professional baseball that bother me. Um, you just kind of have to adapt. You love the game a lot. You know, it's been my whole life. And, and uh, so you know, I tell everybody, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up and have to get a real job. I've been doing this professionally since I was 21. Uh, it's just, you got to just kind of adapt and sometimes, you know, just, close your eyes and, and think back to the way it used to be. And, you know, there's, there's, you tell stories with some of these minor league guys and, and they don't believe some of the stuff that we went through before uh, compared to what they have today, you know, and the, the, the opportunities they have. We, my first year in the minor leagues, we had a manager and a trainer and the trainer drove the bus. 
Um, now they have a manager in all of our minor leagues. They have a manager. They have a pitching coach. They have a hitting coach, two other coaches, a trainer, and a strength conditioning guy. There's about seven staff members, seven or eight on each minor league team now. And they, they get meals all, all the time, you know, delivered to the clubhouse where we used to have peanut butter and jelly. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different game. All, all yeah. kinds of things. Are about, do, you you think, do you think that any current mold of major league baseball players has as much will to win as the 75 Royals, 76 Royals, 77 Royals, 78. Well, I, think so. I think that's still there. The will to win, you know, regardless of the money that they make compared to what we made. I mean, we were, we were tickled to death. We, we thought we were, I thought I was one of the richest guys in the world, you know, playing back then. And I was only making, well, my first year was 16,000 in the big leagues in 76. And now it's going to sound like it's going to go up to 700,000, whatever. Yeah. So things have changed obviously, but we were happy and never have any regrets. Uh, the time I played kind of like, uh, Buck O'Neill, he said, my timing was just right. I think what was the famous quote he had? I was right on time or something. Um, yeah. yeah, that's so, exactly what he said. Yeah. So, you know, to be in the two World Series and playoffs seven out of ten years, made a good living my entire life because of baseball, I, I can't badmouth anything no, about no, baseball. No, I, I wouldn't. Things, things that upset me from time to time, things we do that we change, just for the fact that we'll, well, let's try this. Maybe this will work better. Well, that was a pretty good game before. You know what? I, I don't think you have to make a lot of changes to it. And it seems like um, there's changes all the time. So just got to kind of adapt and go along with it. And, uh, you know, I'll be done pretty soon. So out of all the Royals games that I've seen, and I'm going to ask you if you have a, a favorite game or two, but the most memorable it wasn't Saberhagen. It wasn't uh, 85 World Series win. It was the 1980, might have been, I guess it would have been the ALCS, Friday afternoon at, at Kauffman Stadium uh, against the Yankees. And you guys won the game. Nobody would leave the ball. I mean, we were there for an hour and a half before we even tried to get to the parking lot. People were just, it's as crazy as I've ever seen a stadium, including the Chiefs games and everything else. So I don't know if you remember. You, I know you remember. Yeah, you know, and, and I can add to that. Um, in 80, when we finally beat the Yankees after losing in the playoffs in 76, 77, 78, when we beat them in New York and George hit that big three-run homer, uh, I had never heard Yankee Stadium quiet like that. It was You could have heard a pin drop after he hit that home run. So... That was a memorable one for me, which just you know, kind of adds to what you said about the, the first couple in Kansas City. We played two in Kansas City, I believe, and then... Uh, well, you know, I remember, I think Aikens was a, a big factor in that team. If swept them, so I'm assuming that we had two in Kansas City and the last three would have been in New York, you know, back then, because it was best three out of five until 85, um, which a lot of people, by the way, don't remember if that series when we beat Toronto in 85 had been in 84, it would have been done because that was the first year they changed the playoffs from three out of five to four out of seven. And we were down three games to one to Toronto that year. And then we were down three games to one to St. Louis in the World yeah. Series, which of course has always been four out of seven. But anyway, that uh, so we must have won the first two in, in Kansas City and then won the third one with Georgia's three-run homer in, in New York because we swept them three games. Well, I'll never forget how it was – you know, for a, a, a daytime playoff game, number one, even back then, daytime baseball wasn't very prominent. And uh, I remember it might have been a late afternoon game, but I, I just recall that event. And then, of course, in 85, that was when Dane Orch got the, got the hit and everything fell into place after Mr. Denkinger's mishap at first base. Can you think about Going back to like with a three out of five memory of Toronto, can you think if they had instant replay back then? <laughs> it, yeah. it, would be, uh, it wouldn't be the world champion. All the first base against St. Louis with Don Deckinger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That would do, uh, you know, and I, I tell all the Cardinal fans that really still bring that up all the time. I, 
I try to make them feel better, but apparently it doesn't work. What I tell them is, you know, all it took was a World Series share for Don Dengager and a ring to get him to make that call. That for some reason, that seems to make him even more mad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> our, our, for some reason, I our firm did a deal and we had represented Dick on a few things. So Dick was kind enough to give me a video interview. And and I asked him that that was uh, spring training after you guys won before before Dick got sick or before he knew he was sick. Anyway, I had said, hey, Dick, I was in your office, you know, back in Kansas City, and uh, I think that's a nice portrait you got of Don Denkinger over your desk. And, you know, <laughs> he accused me of being Howard Cosell. What a good, you know, there's no, to me, there, and I didn't know Dick that well, but but um, there was no nobody any nicer to to somebody that wasn't in uh, in the Royals organization than he was to me. Um, just a just a really really good guy and uh i know you enjoyed your time around him and and whitey yeah, too. Man. good man I, I played for some pretty good guys whitey herzog gave me my first opportunity and dick hauser allowed me to to play a lot and and have the green light when i got on base to steal bases and uh, yeah he was good man well good you're base. a good man you're nice to give up a few uh minutes of your evening and and talk a little bit about the uh, the current situation that we've got uh it's nice to hear some you know we're a little bit more upbeat and hopefully you know it's got to get resolved the question is when yeah. and what effect yeah hopefully very soon for all, all of right us. well what time are you teeing it up tomorrow no, i'm gonna take tomorrow off i'm Dude. gonna go out friday again wow. yeah, I played, played yesterday and today i'm gonna take tomorrow off and play again on Friday. It's supposed to be a little windy, but I guess it's in the seventies. Yeah, I have to go back to Chicago next week, so I'm going to play. I'm going to try to play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, oh well, I think there's a little weather coming. You better, you better not walk. You better not walk that much. You better ride a cart. You can play that much. Uh, you're a good man. I enjoy talking to you. It's been fun. Um, looking forward to baseball getting going again and, and talking to you uh, after the season gets started. But I appreciate you coming on, man. And You're welcome. we got to go play some golf, dude. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Let's get the fairways green first and uh, warm up a little bit. Yeah, I agree. Well, for the lighter side of baseball, it's been a little more light than my usual podcast. And so uh, on Spotify and Apple iTunes and all the other places you get a podcast, I appreciate John being on, I appreciate you guys listening. So, John, get them straight, buddy. Thanks, Jamie. See right. you soon. You too. Bye.